My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. When talking about alternative systems, often there is a sense that it's impossible to create these systems without money energy. And while there is truth in that, there is maybe not always a systemic understanding of how money operates, how money was created, and where its influences can be made to be a positive energy and where it can be something that can be replaced by other means of exchange. So that's what I want to talk about in this systems thread of this batch of the podcast. So starting off with the evolution of money and understanding what it is in terms of being a means of exchange, you have to go way back. So for about 100,000 years of our indigenous human lives, very few forms ever evolved of a system of money. There seems to be some use of shells by a few tribes in only a few locations. And shells were just something that you might have. I think some of the shells that they found have holes in them and they would have worn them and kept them on a necklace and they were used as a means of exchange. But the earliest form of money that becomes slowly but surely something we recognize and find similar evolves at the same time as agriculture in Mesopotamia, in the Nile Delta, with the evolution into the Egyptian system. And there are stories that might be familiar from Western biblical stories of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, which is a story in the Old Testament of a period of famine that a young person from a different land, Joseph, comes and has these is known for having insights and dreams. And in the end of this story, as a lot to the beginning of it, but He's captured and is sold into slavery in Egypt, but again, this knowledge of dreams that he has that senses something in the landscape or senses something, whatever, his capacity for prediction predicts that there will be seven years of famine, and he persuades Pharaoh to build grain stores. But those grain stores were something that was already evolving within Egypt, and this is because of a change in the route of where 
food came from, from a sort of distributed skill that everybody had, where hunter and gatherer type of skill, where most of the forage was available. And at that time in Mesopotamia, this was a forested area. There was the rivers that overflowed. There's talk, again, you can kind of see this in Old Testament Bible. They talk about the cedars of Lebanon and all of the forestry that came and was used later um, to build things. So that was, as agriculture was spreading, that was slowly being denuded and turned into monoculture crops of wheat being grown and grain being grown, and you get the bread-based staples of the culture. And so at the time of the grain stores, this was a change that affected all sorts of things because instead of it being a distributed system of wealth where everybody could access their own needs through fibers they needed, building materials they needed, and food they needed, now you had concentration of those being increasingly power over, literally the kind of pyramids of Egypt, and you have the slaves that are doing the buildings, and you have all of that shift in culture. But one of the things that was part of that shift was grain stores, so that all of the food for the society could be protected. So it was stored up, and then you ended up with proto-armies protecting this food source, because now it wasn't a distributed resource, it was all in one place. And so the small farmer land holdings would have brought their grain to these big grain stores. And I've seen this in South Italy, actually, with olives. We have one olive press in a small town, and everybody comes in with any amount of very small sacks of olives, right up to truckloads of much bigger supply of olives. And they come to one central point and press the olives, and then you get your olive oil back. But in this case, they'd have been coming to one central point with their grain and putting it in. But to know how much did you put in, they invented a clay tablet, a kind of a chit, to say, right, I've put that much grain on deposit in the grain store, and then you could come back and take what you needed using these. But very soon, it was realized that maybe you had put in more grain that you needed and you get a different kind of commerce evolving where you could, in fact, use your chits, your clay tablets that are a representation of the amount of grain in the store. You could give those to other people in exchange for something else. So instead of it being a direct exchange of, I can make this skin that is going to be used for clothing or for covering a shelter, and you can do this other thing, and we might make a small surplus of these things and swap them. Say, I'll swap you a couple of skins for that meat or whatever it is. This is more complex system evolving where you've got your clay tablet and you can go and exchange it for a bolt of cloth or other foods or building materials. So you get this new layer of commerce evolving, which is something we begin to recognize similar to some aspects of modern commerce. In fact, they started making new clay tablets and new chits for honey, and these have been found, little representations of hives 
and other things that you might have as a food produce. And you could also get a store of those somewhere. And so you have kind of merchant stores, the first shops, if you like, start having a number of these things. And you can go along to them with your clay tablets and buy stuff. But one of the things that's significant about these things being made of clay is that once the stores ran out and the cycle of the year was turning, a new grain was being grown and later coming to the stores, is that there was a moment in the cycle of commerce each year where all the clay tablets were broken and new ones were made for that year's grain. So what that means is that despite the fact that there were pharaohs who had the political and army control given to them to protect these resources, the land, and also to expand because grain-based agriculture meant the continual chopping down of forests and growing because it otherwise, except in the Nile Delta where the river replenished the soils as this culture spread, they needed fresh soils that were not tired, and so they would cut down forest and grow in the fertile forest, and then they'd expand. So this is where you have this whole relationship with power over and dominance. And Starhawk, a, a writer who, who is a permaculture writer, has written extensively on the change in culture that that dominance and power over does across the whole culture and across the relationship between men and women, for example. So what the money system, though, continues to be is one that there is not yet a concept of debt. So there's a concept of pharaohs and powerful armies and slaves, but this level of commerce and exchange is not yet based on debt. And in fact, the early laws of that area were suspicious of, if you like, and nervous of debt. And even later on in the Torah, the Hebrew laws that are kind of remnants of that culture that came down into other areas of the Canaanites and so on, they had laws around the erasure of debt in seven-year cycles. So if people had lent each other something if they had lent tools or animals or land for cultivation every seven years everything all debt was wiped out and everything returned to kind of a baseline from which people could start again and there was also in those later systems there were laws around the care of the poor that were very specific so somebody's uh, husband died the brother of that man had to look after the widow. There was uh, rules about the crops, that there was gleanings, they were called, where when the crops came in, things were left that were small amounts of the grain. They weren't cleaned to within an inch of their life. That was a really important piece. So that widows and anyone who hadn't land could go in and get the food they needed. So you have this kind of early system that Money's evolving and wealth is not accumulating except through military power, not through the mechanism of money and debt. And there are plenty of people, as usual, when I talk about these things, they're kind of my synopsis and my little elements of what I've read 
There's some really great books about the evolution of money and the evolution of debt out there, so you can get more detail or, or correct and verify some of the things I'm talking about. But the next one that I've understood is how you end up with a different form of money where debt is possible. And my understanding is that that came much, much later in Europe, where instead of clay tablets, they started to use something that was already a precious metal, as they called it, so something that in its, of itself had some value, and they used coins. So the Romans, of course, have done that, and then you keep going all the way up to Europe, and you get gold coins being used by merchants in Europe. And what began to happen, as I understand it, a man called Richard Douthwaite has a terrific little book on this. Um, he's since died, but I learned a lot from reading Richard and meeting Richard. And you can find his stuff online through FASTA, F-E-A-S-T-A, which is a resource base for some of this kind of alternative economics thinking. And what Richard wrote about was how, as you got this money that was gold, it began to be heavy because the way that it was sort of being used meant that you had like bags of money that you carried around to, to exchanges. And so somebody thought up the idea that you could deposit that in the same way, really, that the grain had been deposited. You could deposit your gold in a safe house, a safe box. And again, that link to guarding these resources, to having a strong man and a strong box in a strong house to kind of guard your gold. And that then you'd be given a chit for your money. So now it's similar to the grain, but instead you've got a piece of paper that says how much gold you have, and you get the invention of paper money. Easier to carry about, represents how much you have on deposit in this, what becomes a bank, essentially. But the other aspect that makes it a bank that we would understand to be a bank today was that those in charge of the safe house and the safe box realized that over time, the money that they handed out, the ca this paper money, this these chits, were not, there was no process like with the grain where it all got cancelled out and you started over. So deposits could be left there for long stretches. And what they realized is there was a percentage of that always in the box. And therefore, they could issue more paper than there actually was gold. And that's the beginning of the invention of debt in a new form. And so you had the ability to go to them and look for a loan, which was more paper money, based on the deposits of other people, and then you had to pay that back through your labor, through your sale of goods and so on. And now you're in the territory of commerce as we know it, where you have invisible money not based on anything of substance, neither grain nor gold, it's just made up pieces of paper. And the you know, the different ways that that evolves in terms of knowing whether it's associated with this bank where there is something in it or whether it's made up, you know, this is where you get into possibility of forgery and all of this kind of thing. So once you understand that, you realize that the coins we carry about still or any other 
means of, of imaginary money, so money that's minted and made, and is meant to be based on that same gold standard about how much of that's actually on deposit somewhere. But in many ways, it becomes so fictional that it simply gets its value from us agreeing collectively that it has a value. So that is why we evolve all the way to Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, or they're just new means of exchange, and they work as long as they get assigned a value and they're secure, like they can't be minted or forged. And that's why Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have these kind of ways to ensure that they can't be made up by other people. They have kind of essentially a type of code in them that can't be replicated. So all of these are just things we decide you can exchange. And you know that because I remember, I think it was Richard Douthwaite telling me a story that you can sometimes in Europe, you might have other currencies that come in your coinage that you don't notice. So there could be something from the Middle East, there could be something from South America, you could end up with something in your in your coin purse. And maybe it, it, it facilitates many, many exchanges because it looks like a 10 cent piece or five cent piece until somebody, maybe a shopkeeper goes, oh, that's not real euros. And so at that point, they they stop saying that can be used as a means of exchange, even though it's been being used as a means of exchange. Suddenly it can become this currency that's not recognized. So I wanted to explain all that before talking about some of the problems of money. We know about this accrual of debt, and this happens at the individual level, at the family level, but also at the nation-state level, where you have huge debts, loans, accrued by nations, and agreements about paying those back. And sometimes currencies totally collapse because of the way that they are integrated into the economy of not only a nation state, but the world. And some very interesting things have been happening because at the community level, there are alternative economics that happen all the time where exchanges and value is exchanged and labor is exchanged for no money at all. There are estimates about how much of what we call the economy are made up of non-monetary exchanges, and it's quite significant. And in fact, one of the places that there's clear evidence of how that works is actually on the um, use of the internet, because there is a lot of free, you could call it labor, that happens within the internet that creates value without there being a money exchange. That's just a good representation, almost a diagrammatic representation you could make out of the internet, something that happens anyway. And there are people who have created alternative money systems where essentially within a community you agree that you're going to use this other system. And what? why would you do that? Well, one of the reasons is that it can stop there being a leaky bucket of money being extracted out of a community in the way that capitalism does, where extraction goes to the core and leaves the periphery in more poor circumstances, in the margins. 
So within an economy, you could, and people have experimented with this, you could make a completely new currency. You'd have to get people who are in the commerce of the community to agree that they'll use this. And usually when they do them, they put them as backed by the existing currency. So this has been experimented with all over the world, and it's a growth area. There are more and more community currencies. And the thing that works with them is that they have to stay regularly in circulation. They're not, their purpose is not something that can be hoarded, nor something that can create debt. And so quite a lot of them have a kind of a, a sell-by date where you have to have it in circulation or maybe you have a little stamp that goes on it every time it's used to keep it viable as a currency. Or there's I've seen ones with little tear-off strips and then the, the currency reaches a kind of finite time. And then usually the currency can be cashed in against whatever is used and backed and what happens, I've seen groups do this and use it as a kind of a mechanism for fundraising because what happens is that like in the town of Kinsale, I think, or Kinmare, and in Totnes in the UK and Burlington in Vermont, um, where they've experimented with these and they've worked quite well, is that people come and the tourists will cash some of their dollars, say, in Burlington into the local Burlington dollar and they use it while they're there and they take some home because it's usually they're usually very beautiful and printed in really amazing ways. And so basically that when they do a kind of clear out and clean out of the currency, there's some profit has been made. There are some really interesting experiments on this basis that then interact with the mainstream money system in positive ways for communities. And because those local currencies had been developed and as a concept they'd existed, there is an increase of them being used in moments where local currency or local economies die to bad levels or completely wipe out um, a currency's value from a nation state. And one of the examples of this was in a South American country where I think it was Paraguay, where they their currency completely devalued, and local leaders created local currencies as a way of allowing exchanges to happen. And the local currencies became so vibrant that when they refloated their currency on the international markets and got their national and international economy going, they decided to keep the city-based currencies for different ones in different regions because of what they do for local economies, less extraction, more ways to exchange between people. And I believe that's happening again in recession periods and even through coronavirus year. There was an acceleration of these in the United States in areas where there was slumps in economy. Um, so that's just something to be aware of, that we use money, we invented it. And I think Bill Mollison of Permaculture said that money, in terms of the main currencies, turned into something that was like manure. It acted in the system a similar way to manure, so that a big pile of money hoarded and kept is contaminating, just like manure is, and that what nature's doing, if there's a big pile of manure, is very rapidly 
trying to distribute it back across the whole system because otherwise it's polluting and toxic to the soil life and toxic to plant life and kills off stuff. So he, he said money and manure have a lot in common. What you want is to have it moving and distributed just as a means of exchange. And then just to finish on other ways of exchanging, there are a couple of people who thought to invent another way of generating exchanges and a type of currency. Um, there's a man called Edward Kahn who wrote a book, Time Dollars. And his is kind of an interesting story because for me, I think one of the questions about money is what have we allowed become a commodity to be sold on a marketplace and why we did that and what its consequences are. So, for example, the commodification of food. So, starting off with those grains, but all the way into the huge 20 or thereabouts multinationals that make a huge extraction of food from the producer level up to a kind of manufactured and processed level, and they make a lot of money. And then at the same time, people talk about what are the methods that we have to feed the world? And I think that the question of feeding the world is not cannot be addressed with the commodification of food because in commodities markets, the idea is to control scarcity and therefore manipulate prices in order to maximize profit for shareholders in these big companies. So once we... Sometimes there's arguments about monoculture and grain-based culture, agriculture that uses now chemicals rather than expansion into forest floors and so on. It uses chemical fertilizer and doesn't take care of the soil and give uh, amendments to the soil through organic matter and so on. And there's this argument of, well, but that's a different method and would it feed the world? And I always like to say we haven't been trying to feed the world through the commodification of food, they've been trying to extract profit into the hands of a few. So these methods are, are something that are very directly related. This agricultural and money exchange has been connected since the very beginning. But there is other things that we have that are services. And Edward Kahn wrote about the service of care because he had, I think he was quite a wealthy man, and but he had a heart attack and he was in hospital and had huge amount of care in, in his recovery and he paid attention and noticed that those that were giving him the most care in the hospital were the lowest paid so the orderlies and the nursing staff that really helped and encouraged him in his recovery and looked after him at a very physically demanding level, but also emotionally, and we're not paid very well. And he thought, this isn't right. How can we use a value-based money system to value care? How is it not priceless as opposed to having a price? And he came up with a concept of what he called time dollars. And it's interesting. It's been experimented with around the world where you simply bank one hour of your time and for that you can exchange that for an exact equal hour of your time and 
what is interesting is it was used for lots of different things. Lots of communities have uh, groups have experimented with time dollars, and you can read all about those um, from Edward Kahn's book, but also now internationally if you look up time dollars. But one of the places where it really took off and is apparently still very much in use is in Japan. And the reason was that in Japan, there was a very strong ethos of care of your elders, a kind of cultural obligation and duty. And that was easy to do when you lived near your elders. I think I've mentioned that I was just spending time in Donegal and I had a lot of conversations in the community about the strength of the care of elders and how many people are looking after their older members of their families on farms and so on. But that works when you live where your elders are. And even in Donegal, I was hearing stories of, say, a brother who would be taking care of an older person and a sister who lived elsewhere would come home for the weekends and give the brother time to go off and have some respite, walk in the hills, do their own thing. And so this was increasingly what began to happen in Japan, where younger people, younger families had to travel for work. There was more mobility into different cities across Japan. And the time dollar concept came at just that right moment. And so what a lot of young people in Japan do is they go and care for somebody else's elderly parent in the community that they're now living in, or the city they're now living in, and they bank those hours, and then somebody else in a different city can also bank theirs by looking after a parent, and there's a direct exchange of care. I thought that was really interesting how that continued. And then there are a slightly similar one uh, to that, which isn't just specific to care, which is called LETS. But it's interesting, Richard Douthwaite set up the first LETS system in County Mayo in Ireland. And he said that there is a interesting um, part of LETS is that you have to have, if you have a LETS group, so for local currency exchange if, and trading, you, you basically need to have as kind of a certain number of people, but you also have to have a good diversity of skills in the group. Because Richard said that what happens is that in order for these kinds of more direct exchanges and barter to occur in the way that Let's is set up, people kind of need to know each other and trust each other. So he said that what they ended up having was a lot of Let's gatherings, kind of Let's parties, so that the conversational exchanges supported the other exchanges that would work in the system. But he also said you could end up with a lot of massage therapists or yoga practitioners and not enough builders and growers, for example. So that's something that has continued to be experimented with, but it requires a certain cohesive community for that to, to work and to have, as I say, what Richard says, the, the, the diversity. And then one last one that I wanted to just talk about is another mechanism that's in use that we experimented with edible education or social enterprise Gagdura is the idea of trying to create a better exchange mechanism with producers again to cut out a lot of that extraction and middleman in order to not have farmers go into massive debt because 
in the current system now of farming, what happens is a risk cycle where a farmer produces food, whether that is a crop or whether that is meat or milk, and they start off each year basically having to buy grain or having to buy stock or so on, and they have a lot of equipment costs and all of that. And what they're hoping is that by the time the harvest product is going to market, that the prices equal the cost of production, and therefore they will both not accrue debt, but they'll also make a livelihood for themselves and their families. And in fact, within the European system, for a long time, the hiddenness of the extraction into the middlemen, into the big multinational food companies that I've mentioned, has been hidden and isn't sort of visible due to subsidies to farmers. So if farmers were to only be working on the market selling their product, they might not clear their debt each year because there are different years and there are huge fluctuations in prices controlled by the market. And so they may not make enough to make a livelihood. And therefore, they might go out of farming altogether. Or, as I think I've explained in a different thread, they are being subsidized in any case to also put chemical um, fertilizers and use of pesticides into the system. There are other big agricultural companies where that's a huge cash cow, the chemistry and the chemical companies that came from basically the Second World War and the manufacture of chemicals. And then they were very happy that farmers were persuaded to use all these chemicals um, post-war. And so the, these big agricultural companies. So all of that is hiding the fact that the farmers in in the West are not making adequate livelihoods from the production of their food. So there is another movement that started, I believe, in, in Switzerland in the 1970s and again exists elsewhere in the States. It's a very rapidly growing movement and they are counter-debt farming movements and it's called community-supported agriculture. And at the level that I practiced this for about six years, as an experimental push to see, could we do this? And now I've kind of stopped that and handed on to other people in our area, a young couple that have started a CSA, as they're called. And they're growing in Ireland bit by bit. And the premise of a CSA is all about not going into debt. So you sign up as a membership and distribute the risk across the community. So say you had 30 members for a vegetable box scheme or 500 members for a large mixed farming scheme. And that you sign up and you pay your membership up front. But because there's 500 of you or because there's 30 of you, if there's a failure of one of the production cycles, so if there's a failure of a crop or a particular vegetable, or in the case of meat, milk and eggs, some other failure in the system, you take the hit instead of the farmer. So that it's distributed across those 30 people and it's distributed across maybe 500 people. So the loss of you maybe not getting your potatoes is something that everybody can deal with because of that 
small, you know, the collective power of the community money. And so CSAs are growing because what that gives is a security to a young farmer that they have their salary for the year, they have their obligations to their customers and usually a strong relationship with their customers. I know one friend who ran a CSA was talking about how the store kind of a room where people could go in and just take their ready harvested veg. Everyone had like a key or a code um, to the shed and came and picked stuff up. And this, and she was running a CSA and there was a severe early frost and there were no vegetables in the store because she couldn't harvest them frozen from the ground. And people were saying, why, why is there no veg? And they hadn't maybe that awareness or connection to the weather and how severe it had been. And so she organized a farm walk and took everyone out for a farm walk on a weekend. And then they saw, oh, the vegetables are frozen to the ground. That's why there isn't any veg. So it becomes a more resilient system. And if you had more than one producer, we ran it, our scheme when we ran it was actually a collective of several different producers, all producing different products and in some cases the same products. And so if there's a failure in one field, there might not be in another. So at a kind of food security level, CSAs cut out the middleman, make the price affordable to people, but also make the price as viable to farmers. And it changes the whole system of debt-based farming. So something that's growing and something that if it shows up in your area, well worth supporting or maybe even starting your own one. So that's a discussion of the power of money, but also the power of community to figure out better means of exchange that don't allow for as much accumulation of wealth in large piles of manure type of money and doesn't also allow for large accumulations of debt in our communities.